Good morning. Just a joy to be with you today. This is Romans 13, 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. This is the very word of God. Well, it's pretty easy to see the theme of these three verses in Romans 13. I think we can all agree, I mean everybody, that the world is better when it is filled with love rather than hate. Uh, The world talks a lot about love, sort of a theme we hear a lot about in the world today. But I've noticed that the world is much more hesitant to start to get into details about what exactly love is, what it means to love another. As Christians, we have no choice. We have to get into the details. We've, we've got to take a theme like love and get in the deep end and understand all that the Bible has to say about love. And one of the things that comes through pretty clearly in this text, and by the way, not just here, Hope you got your Bibles ready. I want to take you in a couple different places this morning as we look at these three verses. But one of the truths that emerges pretty clearly from these three verses is the fact that as Christians, love is a debt that we owe to everyone and can never fully discharge can never completely pay off because it is tied in with our calling as God's people, as the Israel of God that we have been made a part of. So this morning, I want us to consider together this morning the fact that first, Love is the currency of Christian living. Second, love is the summary of Christian duty. And third, love is the test of Christian sincerity. Love is the currency of Christian living. Love is the summary of Christian duty and Love is the test of Christian sincerity. So let's begin. Verse 8, notice that we are told that love is the currency of Christian living. The verse says, owe no one anything except to love each other. 
as Christians, we have an obligation to pay to everyone in the currency of love. Now, the words at the beginning of verse 8 are not meant to instruct us on the morality of financial debts. It's not that the Bible is entirely silent on the question. If you want to know kind of the wisdom about taking on loans and debts, the Proverbs would be a good place for you to go. But here, the words, owe no one anything, are intended first to tie this passage to what precedes. Whatever debts we may have, whatever it is that we rightfully owe someone, verse 7 had said, we have a responsibility with every single debt to pay them off. But the main reason this passage begins with the concept of paying back debts is because Paul wants to highlight the kind of responsibility that Christians are to feel toward their fellow human beings. We do not have the luxury of ever seeing ourselves as living completely debt-free. However commendable it might be to pay off all your financial debts, there is one debt we simply can never pay off. And it's the debt of love. This is a debt that we cannot ever get out from under. Love is a debt that we will always owe to every other person. And as Christians, we must be faithful to pay it. I'm guessing that most of us in this room carry some sort of financial debt. Kudos to you if you do not. The idea of never being able to pay off a debt is surely depressing. But this is a debt that should not depress us. And the reason is because this debt is not meant to go away. It is basic. It is foundational to human flourishing. Were any of us to rid ourselves of this debt, to pay it off completely, things would deteriorate in our world. Everything would be far worse, not better, for all of us. And that's why I'm calling this debt of love currency. If you look at American cash, you'll find these words. This note is legal tender for all debts, public and private. In other words, every time we buy something, we use the currency of these paper bills to cover the price of the exchange of goods. There's a debt that is involved in every exchange, but paying these debts is how the economy works. And a good economy, we know, don't we, is pretty basic to human flourishing. Love is the most basic currency of human flourishing. We don't want to do away with this currency. We want it operating well between all human persons. We pay it, but we are also owed it to our, we are also owed it ourselves. We simply can't have anyone backing out of this economy of this use of currency, or we all suffer 
for it. And as Christians, we certainly owe this currency to every member of the Christian family. But this text, continuing on from the previous, must still have in its purview not just love for another Christian, but love for all persons, all persons. Love for each other within the Christian community ought to be such a commodity of frequent exchange that the world knows us by it but it should also mark us in our relationship with all others as well. What does it look like to pay love to each other? On the one hand, I don't think we have to get terribly specific here. There's something that's innate to some degree within all human creatures of what love might look like. But at the same time, in a world that is clearly confused by the subject. When I say confused, I just mean that there's lots of argument and disagreement today about the nature of love. We certainly could use some help. So where could we go in our Bibles to get a little more clarity on what love looks like? Are you thinking of a chapter? Are you thinking of a chapter that you probably, somebody in here had read in your wedding? I just, I'm sure of it. Yeah, let's go there. 1 Corinthians 13. This is the place to turn, isn't it? And you're familiar with these verses, but let's look at them here briefly this morning again. In 1 Corinthians 13, we are instructed that love is patient and kind. So here it is. We owe to one another the love of of patience and kindness. When we lose patience with someone or act unkindly to them, we have withheld a payment that they are owed. It will not do for us to excuse this lovelessness by claiming that someone no longer deserves our patience or kindness. For this is not a question of them deserving love. It's a question of us owing it to them. The same goes for the other descriptions of love. Look what it says. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Love and pride are mutually exclusive. For love seeks to uplift another while pride is always seeking one's own interests. Consider also... Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. We all tend to assume that our own opinions, our own preferences, are the good and right ones. And that the installment of our opinions and preferences is what will lead to human flourishing. If only the world would... Do it the way I think it should be done. (laughs) Well, maybe. You're thinking the same thing. You do. You think this way. But love, we are told. Look what it says. It lingers. It lingers long enough to listen and understand the way others see things without instantly becoming defensive. This is difficult for me. As I think through my own struggle to not insist on my own way, 
I think part of the fear that I have is if I, if I take the time to truly listen to someone so that they experience from me genuine love, I fear that I will end up being misunderstood as approving everything they say. It's hard for me to listen to another person sharing their perspective on things without me wanting to cut in, interrupt, correct. Some of you are like that. It's partly because I'm afraid that if I just let them say something without a rebuttal, they're going to think I approve. (laughs) So I tend to feel the urge to jump in, critique, or rebut their statements rather than patiently listening. Yes, I'm making a confession to my family this morning. (laughs) But love also, in this fear that I have, look what it says. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. How can it be both ways? Can I genuinely listen to others in love without compromising or giving up my beliefs? Love says you can. Love says you can. It's not one or the other. You can patiently listen and consider the interests of others without being afraid that you'll somehow compromise. Not if you truly love. But I don't want you to expect that this is going to be any easier than paying off a large debt. You take out that 30-year mortgage. It's like, wow, that's a long time, right? It's going to take a lot of commitment to pay off the debt, Don't think love, a debt that can never be paid off, is going to be easier than that. You can't make 13 payments instead of 12 and get done like seven years earlier, however they amortization schedule shows how much money you can save. It's not going to work with love. Notice the final description right here of love. It says, it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Yes, all things. For verse 8 says, (laughs) love never ends. You see that? Of course it never ends because it's a debt that you'll never completely discharge. The way forward then is to embrace love as our basic Christian currency, a debt we can never completely discharge. But now, as we've seen, this is not a bad thing. This is the way God made the world. This is how it's supposed to be. This is is good debt. (laughs) This is good debt. God intends for his world to be this way. Love is not just the currency of Christian living. It is also the summary of Christian duty. The summary of Christian duty. The end of verse 8 says that the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And verse 9 explains how this is so. Three things stand out to me here in these two verses. The first thing that stands out is the possibility. No, more than that, the expectation that you and I as Christians are able to fulfill the law. That's striking to me. 
fulfill the law, and we do it through this exchange of currency of love. Now, can I just say something right here to all of us? Because I needed this. We are going to completely go off the rails here and misunderstand this entire passage if when you hear the words, fulfill the law, the thing that goes into your mind is, I can earn a righteous standing before God. If, that, if that's how you, when you see the phrase, fulfill the law, and you think, oh, I'm able to do that. So if I do it, then I can stand in my doing righteous before God. You know, of course, I hope you know, you've, you're a member of this church, so I hope you know this, <laughs> that that kind of idea is completely out of step with the gospel. But one of the reasons it's out of step is because it's looking at God's law completely wrong. It's often assumed that God gave his law as some sort of test. And if you pass the test somehow, then you will stand before God righteous. Fail to pass the test, don't worry. God, will, God has sent Jesus to pass the test for you, to fulfill the law, to keep the law in your place. And so that's how it works. Now, the problem with this kind of understanding is that if we're just being honest, you look at these verses right here, the text plainly lays out the expectation that the Christian will be able to fulfill the law by actually doing something. Don't take my word for it. Look at it. The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. You see it? Fulfilling the law means seeing that the purpose of the law, the reason the law was given, has been achieved. But here it is. The purpose of the law was never about getting us out of our sin predicament. God did not give his law and to say, well, if you just, here it is, pass this test and you have escaped your unrighteous status. It's not why God gave the law. It was never about earning a righteous status before God. I'm telling you, many Christians, because I was in this camp for years, have completely misunderstood that. The purpose of the law was to show God's people how to be a light to the world of the glorious love of God. God gave his law to redeemed people, to righteous people, to people that he had redeemed for himself. The law comes after. The law comes as a means by which God's people know how to reflect God's glory to the world. So the second thing that stands out in verses 8 eight and 9 is the positive relationship the Christian has with God's law. Way too many Christians, when they hear the law of God, they think, bad. <laughs> and you would be so out of step with the Apostle Paul if that's how you do it. The Apostle Paul sees the law as a good thing. When Paul speaks of the law, notice he has in mind here specifically the Ten Commandments, as verse 9 shows. 
It includes more than that, but, but certainly not less than that. It's the, it's the Christian duty to fulfill the law, to keep the Ten Commandments, and the one who truly loves another is doing just that. Do you see what this means? On the one hand, Christians simply cannot simply disregard the Ten Commandments and the rest of God's law by substituting some law of love in its place. Oh, let's, just, let's just get rid of God's specific commands in the Bible, the imperatives, and let's just love. You can't do that. But on the other hand, and you know this well, you've, you've been in church a long time. There is a way of keeping the law that completely misses the point for why God gave his law in the first place. For an exchange of the currency of love. You can keep the law. You can follow, the, the, you can follow it rigidly and hate people. You've met people like that. You've been a person like that. <laughs> All right. You, you, you don't get the option here of getting rid of the law and replacing with just love people. But you also don't get the option of saying, well, we'll just keep the law and forget the whole purpose of what the law is there for. So one commentator puts it this way. This is a, this is a lengthy... Um, it's one sentence, but you got to stay with me, okay? I, this is helpful, I think. Here's what he says. For while we most certainly need the summary to save us from missing the wood for the trees and from understanding the particular commandments in a rigid, literalistic, unimaginative, pedantic, or loveless way, We are equally in need of the particular commandments into which the law breaks down the general obligation of love to save us from resting content with vague and often hypocritical sentiments which in ourselves and quite often even in others, we are all prone to mistake for Christian love. So all of this suggests then the third thing that I see from verses 8 and 9. It stands out to me. If love requires God's law, you say, okay, I want to I fulfill the law. It's, it's love. Okay, well, you need specific direction. You need to kind of have it laid out what love looks like. If that's true, then the opposite is also true. The law requires love, but not just any love. It requires God's love. If love requires God's law, then the law requires God's love. You and I cannot, we have no privilege, we have no, uh, we have no authority to define love by our own law. Hear me. And neither can we fulfill the law by our own love. You didn't hear that. This was a good line. I worked hard on it. We cannot define love by our own law, but neither can we fulfill the law by our own love. The only way to know true love is to experience it for ourselves and be utterly transformed by it. Recall what was said in Romans 5. 
We rejoice, Paul said there, even in our sufferings, because suffering produces endurance, character, and hope. And this is a hope that does not put us to shame. Why? Why? Here's what it says. Because God's love, not any love, the love of God. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If you're a Christian, if you are a Christian, you can never say, I have never experienced the love of God. You can't say it. If you are a Christian, God has poured his Holy Spirit into your heart. And this Holy Spirit has testified to you of the infinite love of God. For God shows his love for us, Romans 5, 8 says, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We can rightly summarize the gospel itself simply like this. It's the pouring out of God's love on those who were his enemies. If you're a Christian, you've experienced that. And if this is what God has done for us, utterly transforming us by his infinite, matchless love, then we know, we know what it is that we must now do as God's transformed people. We must love our neighbor as ourselves. That pretty much sums up the entirety of Christian duty. If you read that as some sort of, well, I'm not sure God loves me. Let me love my neighbor as myself. Then God will love me. You've missed it all. You've gone off the rails. It's the other way around. God has poured out his love upon you through his Holy Spirit that he's given to you while you were an enemy of God. Now, this love, this matchless, infinite love that God has given to you, I don't know what I'm supposed to do now. Are you kidding me? <laughs> are you kidding me? You are now to, to, to share this love you've experienced with everyone. I mean, that's fun. You're just sharing love. As the Apostle John wrote, 1 John 4, 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. But we can go one step further. Love is also the test of Christian sincerity. I think it's clear by now, should be, that to love is not optional for the Christian. Just consider the connection between the verse I just quoted, 1 John 4.11, and our text this morning. Can you keep these in mind here? Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I don't know how, <laughs> I don't know how many times I've heard that verse, and some, for some reason... It landed on me like this. Beloved, if God so loved us, here's what you ought to do. And maybe this is just a weird feature of the morphing of English language, but when I when somebody says this is what you this is what you ought to do, 
I tend to hear that as, this would be a really good thing to do. You ought to do that. But the verb ought in 1 John 4.11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another, is the same verb translated owe in Romans 13.8. We owe love to one another. Beloved, if God so loved us, we owe love to one another. This is not a suggestion. This is an obligation. 1 John 4.11 also reminds me of another verse. Because we find in 1 John 4.11 those words, God so loved. You know what verse I'm talking about. It's the same words we find in John 3.16. God so loved the world. It is love that defines God according to 1 John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So when we think of God, when you are meditating in the morning, okay, or at night, you Night people, daylight saving time, loving people. When you meditate on God, how do you see him? What's he like? When we think rightly about God and we think biblically about God, we we ought. We should. We are obligated, directed by the word of God, to think of him as infinite love. A love you've never experienced anywhere else. And when we think of how God then sees his world that he made, as an outflow of the infinite intra-Trinitarian love. He loves his world. He loves his world. Sometimes we Christians proclaim how great God's love is for us. We sing it and we should, ought, we owe. This is what we do. (laughs) While at the same time, entertaining the thought that the Bible might as well have said, for God so hated the world. My brothers and sisters, these things ought not so to be. We who have been shown the great love of God are responsible to look out on the world with the same eyes of love that have looked on us, or we simply do not think rightly about this God of love. Our Christian faith is insincere if we do not reflect the love of God to the world. This is not to say that we can 
simply will ourselves to love. If this morning you have been convicted maybe by some of those descriptions of love in 1 Corinthians 13, like I have been, I I hope you don't go home and say, okay, God, I got it. I'm going to try harder, going to do better. I mean, you, you should want to do better, yes, but warning, here comes the warning. <laughs> you cannot simply will yourself to love as if thereby to prove that you're a genuine Christian. I hope if you feel convicted by this obligation that we have to pay love for one another, that you don't feel, you don't retreat back into guilt and shame, but you run back to the infinite matchless love of God in Christ for you. If you think, well, okay, I guess maybe I'm not a Christian. I'm going to love and then I'll be a Christian. If you start going down that track, then you simply don't see how the Bible and the gospel story works. It doesn't work like that. It never has. It never will. You won't be the first to make it work that way. So don't go that path. We're going to need each other probably to help direct us, some of us. I want you to remember, and maybe you should just turn there, what we saw back in Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8, verses 3 and 4, we were taught that God sent his son to condemn sin in the flesh. So that, verse 4, so that, here's what results. Here's what comes after God's amazing, victorious, conquering sin in the death of Christ, the Messiah. Here's what comes. So that the righteous requirement, and I argued back then, This is the righteous verdict. The righteous verdict of the law might be fulfilled in us. But notice what it says. Who walk not or do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. It is because the son of God has severed us from the guilty verdict of the law that the positive life giving verdict of the law that the law was meant to give, can now be fulfilled in us. And it will be fulfilled if we live in accordance with God's own own Holy Spirit. You remember Galatians 5 makes it clear that the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love. The fruit of the Spirit, what the Spirit produces and only the Spirit produces is love. And it produces this love and the rest of the fruit of the Spirit with all who keep in step with God's Spirit. The Holy Spirit will always lead us to reflect God's love to one another and to the world. It's a good test of whether or not we are in the faith. But let us note one last time this morning That the Bible does not leave us to define love on our own terms. What is this love that we are called to reflect to the world? Stated positively, it is, in the words of Leviticus 19.18, which is cited here, 
to love your neighbor as yourself. This is not a new thing. This goes all the way back to the law. And if you're confused on who your neighbor is, well, Jesus has a parable for you. You can read it in Luke chapter 10, 25 to 37. But then notice this. In verse 10, the act of love, which was just stated positively. Well, what does it mean to love? Love your neighbor as yourself. But then verse 10 states the principle the opposite way, negatively. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Interesting. I I scratched my head, figuratively, stroked the beard. That's what theologians do. As I tried to understand, why does he say this? Why does he why couldn't he just left it with it's all summed up in this love your neighbor as yourself verse 11 The positive and negative expressions are necessary in order to take into account the reality of evil in the world Catch this You cannot just say what love is positively, love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that, you are not taking into account the reality of evil, darkness in this fallen world. In other words, it's not enough to just follow the golden rule. That you should do to others as you would have them do to you, right? That's good. But what if how I want to be treated is harmful? What if what I want you to do for me would destroy me? You see the problem? We need both sides of love. We need affirmations, and we, we all love the affirmations. I ran a half marathon this morning. I know most of you know that. And uh, I'm glad for the, all the affirmations. I mean, it was nice. Um, I ran by... 35th in Classen, and my family wasn't there. And my pace slowed down. And I thought to myself, woe is me. All of these, (laughs) I love you, Judy. All of these people out here cheering for everybody except me. <laughs> then I went another mile or so and I heard, Dad! I said, Thank you. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Just a moment of encouragement. A mile later, Dad! Second time! 
think I had about a mile to go or so. And behind me, somebody said, good job, buddy. As he zoomed past me, fist out, (laughs) fist bump. We like the positive expressions, don't we? Do it. Do it more. Encourage one another. Show love. But Christian, you know, you know that's not enough. You know it's not enough. You need not just the affirmations, you also need the denials. No, I won't do that for you. That is harmful. That will lead you astray. That will take you away from a God of love. This is not easy. I'm not, I'm not saying this is easy. How, how easy is it to pay off your 30-year mortgage? Just refinance, start over again. I've tried it, believe me. Like, it's hard. Kitchen's nice, though. You know, so. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. It's not going to be enough to just do to your neighbor what your neighbor would like you to do for them. God's law must be negative of sin or it wouldn't be loving. And if our Christian faith is going to be sincere, we're going to have to be affirming And denying, affirming what is good, denying what is harmful. Church, I just have to say to us, because it's just on the surface. The day we live in right now is a challenge to all of us who want desperately to stay faithful to the word of God and to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this topic right here is one of the greatest challenges. One of the greatest challenges. If we are going to be faithful to the love of God that has been shown to us, we must be quick to affirm what is good, to celebrate with our neighbors everything that is good and right. But we're not going to be able to avoid the need to also say we take a stand on what God says is right, what God says is wrong. And we will not be duped in the name of love to do what is harmful. Are you with me? Planting churches is, to many people's minds, a great evil. (laughs) Did you know that? When we planted this church 13, 12, 13 years ago, there were plenty of people who said, why would you do that? Why would you do that? But if we love God, if we want to reflect the love that God has poured into our hearts, then we must be committed to what God says is good for our world. The planting of churches to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into marvelous light is the greatest good this world needs. Let's pray together.